0: Well, if you open up to almost any book in the New Testament, uh, outside the Gospels, we've been studying the Gospels uh, in Sunday school together. But if you open to any other book in the New Testament, basically, you'll discover that the New Testament church dealt with false teaching a lot. False teaching sort of pervades the pages of the New Testament in the sense that almost everything is a response to false teaching. And you find in the letters of Paul in particular, as Paul writes, he's like a master gardener who's constantly instructing his pupils on how to get rid of harmful insects. It's a lot of what he spends his time doing. And he's continually writing to churches to avoid false teaching, and he also instructs them specifically in how the teaching is wrong and how the good news of the gospel is true. There are entire books of the New Testament that are written to deal specifically with a particular brand of false teaching or even just with how to respond to false teachers in general. Books like 2 Peter and Jude basically address false teaching. And I think sometimes when we, when we think about that, maybe you don't think about it often. Maybe now you'll read the New Testament, the letters, with a, a little bit of... a more specific lens looking for the ways Paul's responding to false teaching. But sometimes when we think about wrong teaching, we think of it as more of an academic contest between Paul and between the false teachers. And he's trying to use reason and argumentation to refute his opponents and to win the day intellectually. And sometimes we think about opposing views in that way. I have to make the best arguments, use the best reason in order to overcome this particular false teaching or this wrong-headed thinking in front of me. And there is truth to that, but the consistent testimony of the New Testament writers is that false teaching is not just getting the wrong definition of the Trinity or misdiagnosing the person of Christ. It is that, but there are other implications to false teaching. It's not just checking the wrong box doctrinally or theologically. It is those things, but it leads to Corruption and moral degradation. False teaching has impact in the way that you live out your life. It shapes you and defiles you morally and spiritually. Wrong ways of living come with false teaching like a fever comes with the flu. They go hand in hand. They are together. You don't have one without the other. And sometimes we forget that. It's not just wrong thinking about this, it's wrong living that results as a, a, that comes as a result of this wrong thinking. And Paul certainly understood this, and, and you see this throughout his epistles, and particularly in the book of Titus, which is where we're going to be again this morning. So turn over there if you're not there yet. But Paul understood this, and if you look at chapter 1 and verse 5... He tells Titus, look, the primary thing you need to do is you need to appoint elders and bring structure to these churches. Look at verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, that's significant for a number of reasons, and one of the main reasons that he tells Titus to appoint elders is found in verse 9. This last qualification of being an elder. An elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. He has to teach systematically in an organized way the truth of Scripture, but he also has to be able to point out what is wrong with false teaching. And he has to contradict that. Elders are to be like sheepdogs who keep the wolves at bay for the well-being of the sheep. And false teaching doesn't just mean you believe the wrong things. It changes the way you live. False teaching reorients your life toward a different end than the glory of God. It changes the way you go about living your life. And we're going to see that today. And I think that's why this warning in verses 10 through 16 of Paul against false teaching is so significant. It comes right on the heels of the instructions regarding elders. And it's so important for Titus to understand this, that false teachers are going to come in. They're already infiltrating the church, and you need to counteract them because it has a devastating effect on the church and on people's individual lives. And it's really important for us today, I'll be honest with you. This is significant. It's not just a passage dealing with a few churches in Crete in the first century. False teaching plays a significant role in our church, in the broader church in America today. It does that because we have information coming over us all the time. Like a river that's flooded its banks, we have information washing over us every single moment of every single day, it seems like. You have access to all kinds of teaching online. You can get anything you want, any sort of preacher you want any sort of book, any podcast, and they're recommended to us all the time. You should check this out. You should listen to this podcast, social media. You're constantly getting a stream of people saying, this is good. You should listen to this. You should read this. This insight is really, really helpful. And some of that is helpful and it is beneficial, but a lot of it's not. In Titus's day, false teaching walked into the assembly as a winsome individual But today, false teaching comes to us through a Facebook post or through a well-marketed Christian bestseller. And if you look at most of the Christian bestsellers, most of them are false teaching. So we have to be cautious and we have to be discerning because false teaching will alter the way we live. It will shape us. So I would encourage you, listen carefully to what Paul has to say here in this passage, verses 10 to 16, and heed his instruction regarding false teaching. So this morning, we're going to see three dangers of false teaching. And along with those dangers, Paul's going to tell us what to do and how to deal with those those dangers in the life of the church. So he describes the dangers, the travesty that it is to heed false teaching. And then he says, I don't want you to do that, so here's, here's what you do to counteract that. All right, three dangers of false teaching and how to deal with it in the church. And the first one of these dangers is found in verses 10 and 11, and it's turmoil. This is what false teaching causes in the lives of the church and the lives of individual families and believers. Look at verse 10. I want you to see how this clearly connects back to what Paul has just told us in verse 9. He says, for he's explaining to you why elders have to be able to refute Those who contradict scripture, he says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision or circumcision party. So last week we saw the importance of godly qualified men to lead and teach sound doctrine in the church. And this week we're going to see the the flip side, the opposite side of that coin. Here are the guys you're not supposed to follow. Here are the guys that that are causing turmoil in the church. And again, this is, this is the case throughout the New Testament. Let me just show you a couple of other passages that talk about the significance of false teaching in the life of the church. 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders, and here's the warning he gives to them as he's leaving them for the last time. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. And here's one of the primary ways that they care for the church. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. This is not an unusual occurrence, Paul says. He expects this sort of thing to happen. And here in verse 10, he lists some of the primary qualities of these false teachers. And then he gives us sort of a hint as to who these people are. Look at verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. This is their character. This is what they are like. They are insubordinate to God's law. This is the same word, interestingly enough, that's used in verse 6 to talk about children who don't obey their parents. They're rebellious. These false teachers are almost like children. They won't submit to God's word. They're rebellious against God's word. They don't place themselves under God's word, but instead they think that they know best. They think they've got the right way to see this. They don't place themselves under God's word. They're insubordinate. They're empty talkers. They love to hear themselves talk, but to no real point and to no real benefit. And ultimately, look what it says they're deceivers. They deceive themselves and they deceive those who are given to their teaching, those they influence. Look at the end of verse 11 in this description here. They're teaching for shameful gain what ought not to be taught. Their real motivation, at least one of their motivations, is greed. They want money. They're using people to try to make a buck. So what exactly are these false teachers teaching? Well, we don't know exactly what sort of teaching this is, but Paul does give us some hints as to, as to who they are. Look at verse 10. Especially those of the circumcision party. So they at least these teachers at least seem to believe that after Jesus, Gentiles need to be circumcised or they can't be a part of the covenant. They can't be saved. This is very common. You see this in other places in Scripture, and this is probably not the same exact heresy, but it certainly has that element to it. Paul dealt with it elsewhere, but here it makes sense that Titus would be the target of this because he's a Gentile so they may have even been saying, look, Titus can't be truly a believer and truly helping you to appoint elders because he's not even following the law. He's not even circumcised. And so the idea here for these false teachers would be that the particulars of the Old Testament law, the dietary laws, whatever it may be, are necessary for Gentiles. And in reality, Jesus came as the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. And so we're not required to follow those particular commands in the Old Testament anymore to be a part of the new covenant. This covenant comes, the new covenant comes to us through the finished and complete work of Jesus Christ. And so these false teachers got that wrong and they were pressing this on the people there. And so Paul says, look, there is a particular way to deal with these false teachers. Look at verse 11. They must be silenced. Keep keep the context of this in mind. These are strong words. You have to silence them. The context is you have all these infant churches, these new churches. They don't even have structure and elders yet. It's like you have this small group of believers who are gathering together in these different cities And these hucksters come in selling their wares and trying to convince these people of their false teaching. And they're causing turmoil. And Paul tells Titus, you cannot let this happen. You cannot allow this to stand. And so you have to shut them up. You have to silence them. And the idea in the word here is kind of to bridle them or to muzzle them. And of course, he doesn't mean to physically place a muzzle or a bridle on their face. But what he's saying is you have to be able to silence them by teaching very clearly the word of God and showing that what they're saying is wrong. That's the nature of your responsibility, as we'll see later, as we'll see later. So you have to silence them. And if they're not silenced, it brings turmoil and devastation to the church. Look back at verse 11. They must be silenced since they are upsetting, turning upside down whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. False teaching, bad doctrine causes turmoil. Families are being turned upside down. They're being turned against one another through bad teaching. Things got confusing for people through this false teaching coming in. Things got turned into turmoil. Now remember, elders are supposed to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And think about that. We described it a little bit. What does it mean, sound doctrine? It means healthy, whole doctrine. Doctrine that leads to a, a good life for you. Biblical instruction that leads to wholeness and spiritual health. It brings security and peace. You have a firm foundation with which to rest your life upon. You know where you're going when you die. You know how to approach life in this world because it's based on a firm foundation and on reality. The reality of the scriptures brings integrity and honesty. But false teaching here throws all of that into chaos. It's like being caught in a windstorm on a sailboat. You can't get your footing very well. Things are in turmoil. It's unsettling. And false teaching casts doubt on God's word and on the finished work of Christ. And that's what was happening here. So false teaching causes turmoil. It is disruptive in people's lives in ways that are not good and not healthy. But not only does it cause turmoil, it also causes corruption. It's not just that people are confused. It's that people are actually being corrupted through this false teaching. And this is in verses 12 through 15. Now it's at this point, This is, you're going to have to track with me a little bit here. Paul makes a bit of a shift here in verse 12. It's almost like it's, it's difficult to understand what he's doing when he gets to verse 12 because he's been talking about these false teachers. And now he starts talking about this Cretan prophet who gives this saying about people in Crete. And so I think what he's doing here is he's shifting from describing the false teachers to dealing directly with those people in the church who are being carried away to follow them. And he starts out by giving this statement describing the culture in Crete, okay? So this is a description of what the people are like. It's a a stereotype of the people there. And this helps to show us why these corrupt false teachers found a hearing in Crete. Look at verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now, this is a broader cultural view of what life is like in Crete, what the people are like. This is this, These are the social tendencies of the people in Crete. Now, let me try to explain what's happening here. Sin affects each of us individually. We're all accountable for our sin, but... When you and I live and work and play together in communities, our lives create patterns of sin. It's like a ditch that the water runs into. And when it happens over and over again, it gets deeper and wider and it's harder to get the water out of that ditch. We're not born a blank slate. We're born sinners. We're born twisted, but... Growing up in a particular sinful culture with a group of other sinners, there are certain sin patterns that become more normalized for us. They become more natural to us. And the culture reinforces our sinful tendencies. We come into the world already sinners, already predisposed to certain sins, but then the culture comes along and says, ooh, that's good, you should do that. And it reinforces those sinful tendencies, and the scary thing is, after a while, we don't even notice it because it's, it's a part of the air we breathe. And it becomes very normal and natural to us. In the U.S., we drive on the right side of the road. In Asia, they drive on the left side of the road. Now, I doubt any of you got up this morning and thought, why do we drive on the right side of the road on your way to church this morning? You just do it. I just do it because it's natural. It's what we do in our culture. It's normalized for us. We don't even think about it. I was recently talking. I had coffee with a missionary who has been in Africa. He was in Africa for 11 years. Uh, He was in China. Now he's hoping to go to the Middle East, uh, make trips over there to train some pastors And we were talking about cultural differences between some of these places in the united states and he said on a spectrum ranging from individualistically focused it's all about the individual to community focused family oriented community focused on that spectrum the united states is on the far end of the individualistic spectrum we're there we are the end of that spectrum now, most of us don't even think about that in our daily lives, but that growing up in that environment shapes us and it changes us and it alters or it reinforces the way we see the world. Individualism is the cultural air that we breathe. And so with all of that as background, what Paul says here is that these Cretans had certain cultural tendencies and these cultural tendencies allowed false teaching to take root in their hearts. And bring corruption. Look how he describes them. Cretans are always liars. Lying was common. Almost revered in this culture. They're evil beasts. People were driven by instinct. And base desires. And they're lazy gluttons. They sought pleasure and comfort. To the the point of avoiding work. And indulging in too much food. And all of these things seem very natural to them. And when you put those characteristics together, you get a person, you get a culture that has no self-control and is not disciplined of mind to engage in the hard work of Christian growth. And so it makes sense that the false teaching would take root here and would be influencing people here. That describes the false teachers, but it also describes the people that are listening to it. So how should the church handle that? Look at verse 13. This testimony is true. Paul says, yeah, this guy got it right when he was describing the culture here. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Those are strong words. Rebuke them sharply. And what he's saying here, he doesn't mean to go to people that are tempted to follow this because of their cultural tendencies and say, hey, stupid, stop believing those lies. It's not what he's calling them to. But what he is meaning to call them to is to sternly, directly, and patiently explain why this false teaching is wrong and the impact it is having on their lives. And the ultimate goal is that they would turn from the false teaching to sound doctrine. Look at the end of verse 13. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound, healthy spiritually in the faith. The ultimate goal is they'll turn from wrong, corrupting teaching and turn to that which will make them healthy and whole and people of integrity and not lazy gluttons. Look at verse 14, not devoting themselves they, they, we, he wants them to be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Embracing sound doctrine means not getting caught up in these myths or these commands. Now, what are these? Basically, both of these are extra biblical things. The false teachers were highlighting some aspect of maybe a genealogy and creating a myth or a story out of that. They're adding things to Scripture. They're commands that go beyond Scripture here from people who turn away from the truth, who are morally corrupt, and they're calling people to obey these things and to listen to these myths. They're spinning a story out from Scripture that's not the intention of the text. Now, oftentimes people outside the church will think of any sort of rebuke or renunciation of wrong thinking as judgmental. I mean, you see that all the time. Judge not that you be not judged, which is mostly a wrong use of that text. And there's, there is truth. As Christians, we have to be very careful in our tone, in our motivation, and how we go about rebuking people. But Paul tells Titus here, listen, this is a key aspect of your ministry. You have to be clear. You have to be firm. And when used with the right goal in mind, rebuke is important for ministry to help people see the wrong and turn from it. It's a tool to be used for God's glory and for the good of other people. Now, these commands mentioned here in verse 14, the Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth, these are probably similar to what was discussed in 1 Timothy. Let me read this to you. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And here's what they do. Here's these extra commands that they're adding who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything cre- here's the the right teaching. Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And so the false teachers were probably telling these Christians that to be clean or pure, they needed to avoid marriage, avoid sexuality, and they needed to avoid certain foods. But Paul says it's not a matter of ritual cleanness, it's not a matter of what you eat. It's actually a matter of the heart. Look at verse 15. And this is where we really get to this whole idea of corruption. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. And I think the point here is similar to First Timothy 4.4. 4. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Purity doesn't come through avoiding certain foods or other extra-biblical commands. It comes through the work of Jesus Christ. And those who are made pure by Christ are set free to enjoy the physical world and the gifts of God. But those who listen to false teaching have been set on the wrong set of tracks are already corrupt in mind. And that's the description he gives here in verse 15. And so because of their corruption, it will lead to further corruption. They'll misapply God's gifts. They'll misunderstand the commands of Scripture, and it'll lead to further corruption. And you can see here that a proper understanding of the gospel impacts how you go through life and all of your actions, even relating to food and what you eat and what you drink and your married life. It impacts everything when you understand Scripture correctly. But a wrong understanding that comes from corrupt teaching and corrupt instruction will only lead to further corruption because your mind and your conscience have already been pushed off the right pathway and twisted even further. And when this happens, it only widens the gap between your profession, between what you say, and your lifestyle. And that leads to our last danger of false teaching. So it brings turmoil. It brings corruption. It further increases some of our cultural tendencies. Further corrupts mind and conscience. And then lastly, it brings hypocrisy. So think back, sound doctrine brings together my thinking and acting, right? I think correctly about doctrine and I act in line with that. And it brings all of that together under the rule and reign of God in the world. So I am responding to the world, to other people appropriately, as reality is under God's rule and reign. But what false teaching does is it splinters Mind and action, and it brings hypocrisy. I'm not seeing things correctly. These false teachers were not seeing marriage correctly. They were not seeing the work of Christ correctly, and so it brings hypocrisy. It splinters that. Look at verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. It's a verbal profession, but a functional denial. Their real life what they're doing in life actually denies their profession and says it isn't real it isn't genuine there's a there's a split there's a schism there it's called hypocrisy this is like the man who claims to love his wife and cultivates an affair while on a business trip he can say one thing verbally but his actions are preaching and teaching something far different hypocrisy at its core is a divergence between my words and my lifestyle and that's what false teaching brings into our lives. It's a splitting of actions and perceived beliefs. Maybe helpful to try to drive this home. It may be helpful to think in terms of a functional theology. Okay. We all affirm certain things verbally, don't we? If I were to ask you, is Jesus Lord? My guess is every person in this room would say, yes, yes. And most people in this room would be able to articulate the doctrine of Christ to some extent and say who Jesus is and why they believe that. All of us would be able to affirm certain things verbally. But that's not our functional theology. Functional theology is what actually influences the way you live. And most of the time it's not articulated and it's not stated verbally. And you may not even be able to put it into words. But it's what you really believe deep down that drives how you act and how you live. And so you can say and you can profess one thing all day long. But your functional theology is what you really believe. And you discover your functional theology by how you actually live. Your functional theology can actually betray a different belief than what you affirm verbally. It's like, think of functional theology as the engine in your car and your verbal theology as the label on the front of your car. Now, ideally, those would match, but a lot of times in our lives, they don't. They don't match. The engine is something different than what we have labeled on the front of our car. False teaching creates and helps this schism between profession and action. I mean, that's what Paul's describing here. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Because of the corruption that false teaching brings, their actual daily lives do not line up with what they profess or what they even say that they want. They want to know God. They know that's a good end. And maybe in some ways they're longing for that end, but their actions deny that in their lives. It's not what you say you believe, but your functional theology that actually matters. Let me show you this schism in the Sermon on the Mount. Turn over real quickly to Matthew chapter 6. This hypocrisy. Matthew 6. I want to show you this real quickly. Look at verse 2 in Matthew 6. Jesus says, thus, when you give to the needy. He's... He assumes that we're going to give. He assumes that this action is good and that it needs to take place here. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. Now, why do the hypocrites do that? Why do they sound a trumpet before them? Because they want something that doesn't accord with the the nature of this action. This action is a good action. It is good to give to the needy. Why? Because it honors God and it helps other people. It's a way of loving God and loving others. But the hypocrites don't really want what that action is intended to create. Instead, they want something different. And so they're misusing that action. There's a schism between what they are showing By the action and what they really want inside. There's a splitting there. Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. That's their goal and their ambition. They're doing this action with the wrong motivation and with a complete misunderstanding of the action itself. They're using and abusing something good for their own ends. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. The ultimate goal of this action when it's done properly with the right motivation and the right heart is to receive God's approval and to help other people. This is an example of hypocrisy. The motivation for performing the action doesn't match the goal of the action. So in Matthew, the problem is the motivation. But back in Titus, flip back over to Titus, they have the right motivation. They profess to know God, but the problem here is their actions. It's almost the opposite problem of in in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. They're saying the right things. They want the right things. At least they say they do, but their actions are wrong and they're off. They don't match the profession. And what is God's assessment of this sort of hypocrisy? Look at verse 16. They are detestable disobedient, unfit for any good work. So what does the church do to counteract this sort of hypocrisy? Because whether we realize it or not, when we follow false teaching, when our doctrine gets off track, it produces this sort of hypocrisy in us. Our motivations get off. Our actions get off. They become more and more corrupt. And so we have to think right and we have to act right. How do we come to do that? What does Paul say is the way that the church deals with this sort of hypocrisy that comes from false teaching? Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. But as for you, Titus, here's what you need to do. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. There's that word again, sound doctrine. This is the heart of this book. This is why our series is called Doctrine Works. It has impact. Live what you know. Sound, healthy, good, whole, beautiful doctrine works itself out in your life. It changes the way you live. It's doctrine that produces healthy living. It's doctrine that makes the outside, the profession match the inside, the actions, the motivation. Paul is telling Titus to feed the people their vegetables here. That's what he's looking for. Give them the good stuff. Give them the healthy stuff that will help them to be able to perform their their tasks in life, to live a healthy spiritual life. Now, as I was thinking about this, I want you to to just think for a moment with me about the experience today of walking into a grocery, grocery store. We have all sorts of grocery stores right around us. And when you walk into a grocery store, it is almost unfathomable the plethora of food options that are in front of you in that grocery store. There's, there's never been a moment in human history like you and I have it right now. And we don't even think about it. You can go into Meijer right down the street and you can buy the most healthy foods available to you. You can buy raspberries and apples and cantaloupe and romaine lettuce and beets and kale if that's your thing. And the list goes on and on and on. You can walk through the produce section and you can pick up all sorts of healthy food there. It's unreal. But when you go into Meijer, there are also other options in the grocery store, are there not? I cannot go into Meijer without getting sucked into the potato chips aisle because I am an addict when it comes to potato chips. I eat them a lot. I often will have a bag in my desk and at home and in the car. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Have you seen the ice cream options that are available at the grocery store? There's a whole aisle of ice cream options. And I mean, you've got chocolate chip, mint chocolate chip, cookie dough, Mackinac Island fudge. And you can put Sanders hot fudge on top of all of it. (laughs) Which is a good tactic. Certain types of food lead to healthy living and other food doesn't. And we know that. And it works in the exact same way with the instruction and the teaching we take in. This phrase, sound doctrine, means healthy, whole doctrine. And it's the sort of instruction that accurately portrays the Bible and applies God's word and says, you have to live this out. You have to work this out. It's the sort of teaching that leads to action. Top level athletes have to eat right to be able to perform in their sport. They have to meticulously manage their diet because there's a connection between what you eat and the way you perform physically. Now, there's the exact same connection between what you eat. Doctrinally, with teaching and the books you read and the instruction you have. And let me tell you, there is no time in human history like the present with the options available to you for good teaching and good instruction. You can go online and you can download sermon after sermon of high quality teaching. The Christian books that are available now that accurately teach the Bible are more than any of us could ever read in our lifetime. But there's also aisles and aisles and aisles of chips and ice cream that might seem like they taste good initially and they sound good maybe, but man, they are detrimental to our spiritual lives. And in the end, you will not be able to function properly and healthy and whole and live out your faith if you give yourself to that teaching and that instruction. In order to grow in Christ's likeness you have to be taking in biblical teaching, and then you have to exercise it, and you have to live it out in your daily life. And this passage has shown us that unhealthy teaching, false teaching, leads to corruption and disobedience. So don't be the sort of Christian who says, that doctrine stuff doesn't really matter. We're just supposed to love God and love others. Really, who is God? What does it mean to love him? How do we love others? The answers to all of those questions are doctrinal answers. It's teaching that we have to know and we have to receive. And your answers can be either sound teaching or they can be false teaching. And we have to make sure they're correct by God's grace. So my encouragement to you this morning is... Many of you are already doing this. Develop healthy doctrinal eating habits and reject false teaching and reject the lifestyle that goes along with it. Let's be a church. Let's be people who learn correctly and live that out. And it will impact how we relate to others in the world and how the gospel goes forth from this assembly. You can't get away from that connection. God's designed it that way. Let's pray. Father, we want to be people who are submissive to your word. The challenges in front of us, Lord, from this passage, we don't want to be those who follow wrong teaching, false doctrine. We want to be those who are healthy believers, who are whole, who are able to exercise our faith and are able to put into practice what we know. And so I pray that you would give us discernment, help us to long for your word, help us to read your word and study your word, help us to know your word and know you through the Bible so that we can live the way we're supposed to live. The way that is befitting to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to reject false doctrine because ultimately it will damage us, will lead to corruption, hypocrisy and turmoil. But we can't do any of this without you, Father. We need your Holy Spirit to teach and illuminate. We need you to guide us. And that's our prayer. That's our desire even today. We need you, Lord. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.